if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that Christ has been raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come in the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Today, we are joining billions of Christians around the world and throughout the ages and celebrating the day that Jesus rose from the grave. Uh, It's the most important celebration day in the Christian faith because without the resurrection, without the Easter story, there is no Christianity. There's no Christianity without the resurrection. There's no Savior, no salvation, no forgiveness of sin, no hope for all things. Even the scriptures themselves say that if Jesus didn't rise, then our faith and this thing we've been doing for the last 2,000 years is just this royal waste of time. But if Jesus did rise, And man, that that changes everything. That changes everything. Like last weekend, I was hanging out with a few neighbors in our our cul-de-sac. Just a random weekend to hang out with all the kids we're we're, we're running around together. One of the things I love about our community is that happens a lot. And uh, our neighbor Phil had a buddy over that I was meeting for the, the first time. And somehow, this guy and I, uh, that I was meeting for the first time, we started talking about like boxing and training, and uh, we got on the topic of Krav Maga. You guys know what that is? So Krav Maga, if you don't know, is like literally means contact combat. Uh, It's a self-defense system that was developed by the Israel Defense Forces, and it's uh, it basically is focused on like using your, 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 your hands, your legs, your limbs, and your weight to get out of like these really intense, these really high pressure, real world situations. So you train on, on how to like disarm someone that was attacking you with like a knife or a gun, right? Like high pressure situations. And I mentioned to him as he brought it up, uh, Krav Maga, and I mentioned to him, I was like, yeah, I took a, a few Krav Maga lessons in this studio in San Juan like a couple of years ago. And he's like, whoa, no way, like that's awesome. So, so do you feel like, you know, if some guy was walking up to you and was charging you with a knife that you, you could take him out. And like, to be honest, I only took a couple uh, lessons, so I had to, to stop and, and think about it. And, and in hu- just all humility, I was like, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I think I could take him out. Uh, 
don't know, it's so stupid. <laughs> but there's, there's, actually like a, there's actually a family here this morning that, that bonds over Krav Maga. They, they all belong to this training studio up in North County, and it's, it's a family affair for them. They're like the Incredibles, so like you, don't, you don't mess with them, right? Like they're, they're, I, I saw a picture. Their 13-year-old daughter was reading this book over the holidays called 100 Deadly Skills. Um, so you don't mess with her, right? Uh, but the, the whole family is actually sitting in the back corner there, so um, I actually feel pretty safe in this room uh, right now. But, uh, but the reason I bring that up is that whole conversation that, 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 that we had, man, it made me want to go back. It made me want to go back and take more lessons. It made me want to rehearse those things again. It got me thinking, man, how cool would it be to do that? How cool would it be to know how to do that? There's a certain level of this power and this strength that comes with knowing how to disarm and disable an attacker with like a knife or a gun in any situation with your bare hands, right? It gives you this sense of like awe and confidence, like it would change everything for you. And the Bible tells us that there's a sense of awe, of power, and of confidence that we can find, that we can only find in the power of the cross and the resurrection as followers of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the word of the cross is folly, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is, what does it say? The power of God. You see, that's what the Easter story does for us. That's what the resurrection does for us. It reminds us, it recalls for us that Jesus has power. Power over all evil, over all sin, over the grave itself. And here's what I want for you this morning. I want you to see, to see and to savor the transforming power of Jesus, of the cross and resurrection. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to 1 Corinthians 14, sorry, 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at four points this morning. First, the function of the resurrection. Secondly, the facts of the resurrection. Then we're going to look at faith in the resurrection and then a future hope of resurrection. Let's look at that first one, the function of the resurrection. Read with me in beginning at verse 1. It says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel, which is the Greek word euangelion, which literally means good news. So he's saying, now I remind you, brothers, of the good news that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So what is the good news by which we're saved? Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And when Paul, who's writing this and who wrote most of the New Testament, when he says he's about to give you what's of first importance, then you need to take notes. Right? You need to take notes and, and ask, like, what is it? So here's what's of first importance. Here's the gospel by which we're saved. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, that is the gospel, the good news in bite-sized, like so minimalist, it would make Steve Jobs proud, form. Christ came, 
He died for our sins. He was buried and he rose. I want you to notice that it says that all of this was done according to what? The scriptures. So here's the point I want you to see. The Easter story, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is part of a larger story. It's part of a larger story that starts back in the beginning of the scriptures. The whole point of the scriptures then is to point us to this gospel. The Bible is not primarily a manual for living. It's not primarily a roadmap for your best life now. It's primarily one unified message, a historic message of the story of God's grace culminating in Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. You tracking? So in the first chapter of the Bible, we learn that God created the heavens and the earth as his beautiful design. He spun the stars into space. He spun the stars into their place. He coated the DNA makeup of every creature. And he formed mankind in his image from the dust in the ground. He made us live on forever in perfect harmony with himself and with all creation to bear fruit, to multiply, and to spread the blessing of his reign to the ends of the earth. Like that's the good life that we were made for. But then the scriptures tell us that in Genesis 3, the world started to quickly devolve, quickly devolves from how God designed it to be. All that is good and beautiful starts to break down. And we still see the effects of that today, don't we? We all know the world is broken. Nobody's going to argue against that. Regardless of your belief system, we can probably agree that something has gone wrong with our world and that something has gone horribly wrong in our hearts. So the scriptures reveal that the reason for that, what has gone wrong in the world, what has gone wrong in our hearts, the scriptures reveal that sin is the root cause of this. Sin is the root cause. And so when our first parents decided that instead of God as the sole source of all that is true, good, and beautiful, they gave into this age-old temptation to seize autonomy, to be self-made gods of their own, and to decide for themselves what is true and what is a lie, to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil, what is satisfying and what is not. And then God in his grace wrote, he wrote humanity into his story. And then in our sin, we made a feeble attempt to write God out of our story. And at that moment, at that moment, death, suffering, evil, injustice, all enter the human story by our own doing. And so now we're stuck in this sort of like this cosmic state of entropy. Sin and suffering is the collective cancer that we all suffer because of it. But even though history sort of took that tragic turn, the scriptures still give us good news. Gives us good news. And we're told that death and decay is no longer the end. God makes a promise that he's going to fix it. That he's going to make all things new through a promised redeemer. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the grave is no longer the final stop. And now we wait for something called resurrection. Now we long for, we wait for something called resurrection. And that, that is the function of the resurrection. 
The function of the resurrection is to undo the works of sin and evil on humanity. It's to reverse the effects of death and decay on creation. It's to usher in the power of God to make all things new, to restore things. You could say the resurrection of Jesus is like hope breaking into our hopeless world. So that brings us to our next point, the facts of the resurrection. Facts of the resurrection. I want us to run through a few historical facts surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus that even Christianity's greatest critics have to agree on because they're just historically verifiable. They have, like, other people will have their own theories to explain their way around these facts, but I want you to consider this morning, what is the most reasonable response? What is the most reasonable response to these events? Now look, Christianity is not opposed to reason. It's not opposed to questions. If anything, it provides the basis for reason and encourages us to press in with honest questions. Nobody with a rational mind can deny that Jesus existed, that he made a profound impact on the world as we know it. That people den- What people deny is who he claimed to be, the risen Son of God. So now, let's unpack a few events surrounding his death and resurrection. First, First fact, Jesus died by crucifixion. We see that in verse 3. Jesus died by crucifixion. Now, when Christ stood in our place for our sins, he did so through death on a cross. And like any other crucifixion, like any other death by a cross back in that day, there was always this government executioner. We read about him in the scriptures. There was an executioner, a Roman executioner, who was stationed at the side of the cross, and his sole job, his one job, was to make sure that the deed of death was done. And so, after Christ took his last breath, the executioner thrust a spear into Jesus' side. I want you to picture this. He, he stuck a spear into Jesus' side. And they dig under the rib cage and through the organs to sort of puncture the heart sac to make sure that the person was dead. Happened in every crucifixion, and that's what happened at this one. We see it recorded in government recordings and in John chapter uh, 19 and other places. And then uh, he was, so he died by crucifixion. The second fact I want us to see is that he was, he was buried. He was buried in verse 4. Now, that's what you do with a dead body, right? You bury it. Jesus was wrapped in upwards of 100 pounds of burial linens and spices. His body was laid in a cold tomb, cut out of rock. And so there was like this, this two to 4,000 pound stone that was rolled into place to sort of cover the opening. And the stone covering would be, was like flat, and it was round, and it rested in a track between these two rock walls. So if you imagine it, it would roll between these two walls, and it would require like these two big burly men to, to sort of roll it into place, and then it would lock into this groove at the bottom of the, the entranceway. And because Jesus was considered an enemy of the state, they had a soldier stand guard. Third fact, the tomb was empty on Sunday. You know what's fascinating is that the scriptures tell us that when Jesus' disciples found the empty tomb, they were shocked. 
They were shocked, which they shouldn't have been because he told them this would happen. It tells us in John 20 and in other places that they were all shocked. You think they'd be like, ah, just like he said, right? Just like he said, it's finally time. He rose from the grave. But on Sunday, it says they walked up to the tomb expecting him to still be dead, and they're shocked when he's not there. Three women are the first to find the empty tomb, and their first thought wasn't, he's risen. Their first thought was, who took his body? Where'd it go? How did they do that? And it's strange that no one's walking up to the tomb thinking, today's the day, right? He's ready. Like when the pizza oven goes off and you're like, oh, I'm excited. It's ready, right? Like no one has that sort of like heart posture towards this day. And this other part is hilarious. Like when the women run to tell everyone that his body was gone, John in John, in John chapter 20, uh, John wrote John. Uh, that one's free. Uh, John writes, John writes, me and Peter ran to the tomb and he says, and I outran Peter and got there first. Who says that? <laughs> Who says that? The point of the story is that the tomb is empty, but John wants us to know that he's fast. And also, Mary, at first, she mistakes Jesus for a gardener. Like, the whole narrative is just weird. And the reason I mention all these things is that these would be strange details to include in the story that's fabricated. Historians, even non-Christian historians, have actually pointed out and admitted that this is unlike any religious myth. If this story was false, you wouldn't have these random strange details. You wouldn't have women show up at the tomb first because in their messed up patriarchal society, a woman's testimony wasn't even worth anything in a court of law. You also wouldn't have the disciples painting themselves in this dim light where they wouldn't believe what, where they didn't believe what Jesus said he would do. And John wouldn't think to include some random detail about how he smoked Peter. And not to mention, every other religious leader of that day, of that era, has tombs that you can visit today that have been enshrined over and over again as people would visit them for years and for decades and centuries to come, except for the tomb of Jesus because of the simple fact that he's not there. His body's gone. He is risen. Fourth fact I want us to see is that these disciples were changed. They were transformed by what they saw. Read verse 5 through 7 with me. It says, After his death, burial, and resurrection, he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, which is Peter's other name, and then to the twelve, the twelve apostles. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, <coughs> though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And so Paul says, here in these verses, he says, look, this is something, this event is something that actually happened. Just ask Peter or the 12, he says. The apostles, all these guys that he's telling them to talk to, they actually had a shameful reputation. They had a shameful reputation before the resurrection for being super timid and really afraid and fearful. Every single one of them actually abandoned Jesus on the night that he was sent to die. They were like, I'm not with that guy. And they, they booked it. They left him. But after the resurrection, these disciples were transformed. 
They were transformed into bold witnesses. They became preachers, apostles, church planners that would spread the news of what they'd seen and heard, even to the point of many of them losing everything and dying for their faith. Number five, even James, his brother. Even James, his brother, was, uh, was transformed. We see his name in verse seven. Now, James was actually the younger half-brother of Jesus. Let me ask you guys, how many of you have an older sibling? All right. Now, what would it take for you to believe that your older sibling was God? I rest my case. (laughs) But seriously, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he rejected Jesus. He thought Jesus was nuts. He thought his half-brother was crazy until the resurrection. James would eventually go on to write a book of the Bible, and according to some early Jewish historians, not Christians, living around the time, James, the half-brother of Jesus, would eventually be martyred by getting thrown off a building and beaten to death with rocks and clubs because he refused to recant of his faith in the risen Jesus. Number six, Christianity was born because of the resurrection. You see, when people saw the risen Jesus, that's when the church launched. That's when Christianity was born. You see, the rapid spread of first century Christianity was solely due to the many eyewitness accounts of the risen Jesus in the first century. Paul tells the church in Corinth, he says, look, go ask any of those 12 apostles. You could even ask the other 500 people that have seen him. You see, people don't have hallucinations in crowds that big. They didn't have those kind of parties back then. Right? Paul says, look, go and find those people. Find them. <laughs> find those witnesses. He didn't say, look, all you need, all you need is blind faith. He didn't say, you just need blind faith that Jesus rose. No, he says, look, go find these people. Talk to them. They saw him. These people saw him. They touched him. They walked with him. They sat with him. They ate food with him. They drank wine with him. I don't want you to miss this point. Christianity is not about blind faith. It's a rational faith where honest skepticism is truly welcome. Like, seriously, honest skepticism is welcome. The scriptures again and again themselves actually challenge us to test these things, to press into them, to seek truth and love. And for the record, we value those honest inquiries here at King's Cross. And so if you have any doubts, if you have any hang-ups about Jesus, about his resurrection, any questions about even just a general uh, belief or faith in in God, then, then, then don't be shy with that. We'd love to talk. We'd love to sit down. Now, the fact that the resurrection happened, the fact that the resurrection happened, it changes everything. It changes everything. It's the reason that we gather as Christians on Sunday, week after week after week, for the last 2,000 years. That's why we worship on Sundays. The resurrection gives validity to all Jesus taught about reality. About to gives validity to all that he did and all that he claimed to be. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Paul says, then it's all for nothing. Brings us to our third main point. 
faith in the resurrection of Jesus. In verse 14, it says that if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching, that includes my preaching this morning, is in vain. And your faith is in vain. He drives that point further down in verse 17 when he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, which is the Greek metaphor for death, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we of all people are most to be pitied. You got to love the apostles just sort of brazen honesty here. He says, look, if the Easter story is not true, then me and my friends are liars. There's no hope beyond this life. And thirdly, followers of Jesus are the most naive, the most gullible, the most foolish people in the world. But on the other hand, if the Easter story is true, then what Paul and his crew are saying is the true story of humanity then death is not the end, and in some ways it's only the beginning. And followers of Jesus are now on to something that makes sense of the world, that makes sense of evil, of suffering, and provides the hope that we long for in this world. In other words, whether or not this story is true matters, and it matters a lot. If it's true, then it provides real power for us both in life and in death. Look at verse 20 to 22 with me. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits right there, as a side note, is an agrarian metaphor. It's like that first grape in the vineyard, the first fruit on a tree. And so he's saying Jesus is the, is the first fruit the sign of resurrection hope for all who believe. Then he continues in verse 21. He says, For as a man, as, or for as by a man came death, and by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, that's the first man, all die, so also in Christ, the second man, shall all be made alive. In other words, what happens to Jesus? What happened to Jesus in his resurrection will also happen to those who follow him, those who place their faith in him. I read a story this week about a 19th, or it's actually recorded by a 19th century evangelist by the name of R.A. Torrey. Uh, he wrote about a mountain climbing trip that he went on with some friends. And um, there was this one point when he was on this mountain climbing trip that they were just like hundreds of feet above the ground. And he sees like this really terrifying scene unfold. There's, like his group is 100 feet off the ground and just parallel to them, there's this other group like nearby, this team of like these five big dudes, mountain climbing dudes that are all tied to each other with their, you know, their rope by their one rope. And the guy on the bottom, R.A. Torrey's watching and he sees the guy on the bottom like struggling and like rocks giving way. And then he loses his footing and then he falls. That's terrifying, right? He's watching this. This is happening just yards from him. 
And as that bottom guy fell, eventually the, 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 the rope went, went straight and went taut. And then the next guy, like his weight, the bottom guy's weight pulled off the next guy. And Ari Tori's watching this, like that second guy goes spinning into space, and then all of a sudden he pulls, that guy pulls the next guy off, the third guy off. And this whole thing's just like unraveling before Ari, Ari Tori. He's just like watching this, like in slow motion. And then the man at the top, he looks at the man at the top like, oh my gosh, like all five of these guys are going are gonna to fall over. And then he looks and he sees the man at the top of the line was like the biggest of them all. And this guy, Ari Tori watches as this guy hears the commotion, hears the screaming and the yelling and, and feels the rope on him. And he looks over, he sees what's happening. And then Tori watches as this guy, like, this, he sees, has this look in his eye and he just takes his, his huge arm and just hurls his pickaxe up in this giant arc and just digs his axe like deep into the side of the, of the mountain and then just braces it. Just holds on for dear life. And as the, as the last, as the fourth guy finally pulled down, this guy just braces on, he's holding hard, he's holding tighter, and then all of a sudden he gets pulled back. He gets pulled back and he's, he's bracing himself when it finally comes, this violent snap of the rope. And then he's pulled back and as he holds on, he just stands firm. And the rope starts to tighten around him. And Tori's watching as this guy's getting like strangled. And the rope's cutting into his skin. Tori can see like blood dripping on his arm. This guy's ribs are breaking and he just holds on. And then when the guys below stop swinging on the rope and all the commotion, this guy's holding on for like this long minute. With all his strength, this guy at the top, this adrenaline kicks in and he starts pulling himself up with everyone else hanging below. Pulls himself up until they can all get good, good footing. All the weight of their lostness, of their fallenness came down on him. All their lack of footing came down on him. He bore it all. He was ripped. He was strangled. His body was literally snapped, crushed. But he pulled himself up to solid footing until eventually every man below him got their own footing and all of them were saved. And Tori, he's a preacher, he had this light bulb moment. He's like, our first parent, Adam, was like that first guy at the bottom. He fell, and the scriptures say that we all inherited the sin problem from him. Adam pulled all of humanity down with him until there was only one man left. That one man is Jesus Christ. He decided that he would not only die, that he would not only be cut apart and torn apart, but that he decided that he would also rise up. He would march forward so that everyone with him would rise up to the peak with him and not perish, but go home. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, if you have faith in the risen Jesus, in the resurrection Jesus, then, then that is the power of resurrection for you.
That is the power of resurrection for you. It is faith that Jesus is with you. That Jesus will save you from the fall. And that in his rising, so will you rise. Which leads us to our last and final point, which is the future hope of resurrection. Skip down to verse 23 with me. It says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, there's that metaphor again, and then at his coming, at his return, then those who belong to Christ. In other words, if you belong to Jesus, then you will be resurrected in the same way that he was in an act of recreation, of recreation. Like in Genesis 1, all over again, a return to the good life that God intended for us. He intended for humanity back in the beginning. Read verse 24. It says, Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So every form of evil and corruption will be destroyed forever. That's what that means. In verse 25, he says, For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies, all corruption, all evil, all suffering under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. So, listen, this is the final hope. This verse is the final hope. It's the hope that we long for. It's the hope that we long for, the reversal of all that went wrong in the beginning and the return to all that is right. C.S. Lewis once said, heaven is that remote music that we are all born remembering. What he's saying is that the whole human race has this deep memory of the paradise that we lost. We all have this haunting awareness that there's something more a better world that we were created for. That's why evil and suffering gets at us. That's why death hurts. The Bible says death has a sting. That's why we say things like, this is not how things are supposed to be. It's why we need the future hope of the Easter story. It's why we need the hope of resurrection. See, resurrection tells us that there's coming a day when there will be no more missile tests in North Korea. There'll be no more protests in D.C. No more dictators sitting on thrones. No more shootings in our schools. No more suicides or depression. No more poverty or starvation. No cancer. No misogyny. No more racism in our streets. No more corruption in our governments or our churches. One day, Jesus will crush, will have crushed all his enemies. All his enemies and his perfect kingdom will be fully restored fully restored, and all that's true, all that's good, all that's beautiful, all that we've longed for will be preserved and will never fade and will never decay. The lost, the scriptures say, will be found. The blind will see. The hungry will be fed. The poor will be provided for. The voiceless will sing victory. The oppressed will be vindicated. And all of us who are in Christ, all of us who have faith in the risen Jesus will, to 
together for all eternity, enjoy the glory of God in all his majesty, in all his beauty, in all his love for all eternity. That is resurrection hope. That is the future hope of resurrection. And this is why we come back to this year after year, Easter after Easter. This is why we come back Sunday after Sunday, week after week. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday to remember the resurrection, to rehearse the hope of the gospel, to scratch that gnawing itch that we all have at the soul level because somewhere deep down, we remember, we have a memory of what it was like with God, and we want to find our way back. There is a way back. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, the life. Hear these words from Jesus himself when one of his friends died, and he gave this word of hope. He said in John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let me leave that question with you. Do you believe this? Do you believe this good news? Do you believe in the facts of the resurrection of Jesus? Do you place your faith in that? Do you have this resurrection hope? Maybe you walked into here this morning not yet following Jesus. Do you believe this now? Do you long for this hope? If you want to step into what God is doing in human history, if you want to enjoy the grace of the risen Jesus, then you can do that by, you can step into that by repenting of your sin by repenting of all the jacked up ways that you're living out of sync with the ways of Jesus. The areas of your life where you've defined for yourself what is true, good, and beautiful. For yourself, and you've written God out of the story of your own life. You can repent and step into a relationship with him and wait for his imminent return to make all things new. One day, at that final resurrection, when Jesus returns, it says that all of humanity will return to bodily form. All of humanity will be resurrected and will stand before God to answer for all of our deeds, whether good or evil. And for all of us who are sons and daughters of God through faith in the risen Jesus, that day will be a moment not of fear and trembling, but of joy and of celebration as we step into his renewed and restored and perfected world. Maybe that's you already. Maybe you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus. What would happen if you were to actually live as if this gospel were true? I'm not saying that you don't believe that it's true. I'm saying what if you were to actually live like Jesus is risen? What if you were to actually live as if the resurrection hope were true? What if the resurrection of Jesus was more than just a belief in your head, but it transformed your life? 
your everyday life from the inside out? What would that look like? The answer, power. That would look like power. Power to triumph over sin. Power in the midst of intense suffering. Power not just for how you live, but also for how you'll die. And power for your imminent resurrection to come. This is the good news of resurrection hope. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.